Hi, you're listening to the Devoted Women's Podcast. This recording is a teaching from our in-person Bible study and is meant to be listened to after having completed the lesson in your workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. So here we are. Um, If you'll turn in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I'll pray while y'all are turning there. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word. God, I thank you that each one of these women have taken the time to open the scriptures for herself, to get acquainted with your word, God, for your truth. We know that the unfolding of it, it gives us wisdom, it gives us understanding, God, and, and that takes us showing up. God, we know that when we show up, you show up. So, God, I pray that um, this time be all for your glory. God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you take my mouth and, and use it. Use it as your instrument, God, to proclaim your truth. God, we give this time to you, and we just ask that you bless it. And it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. So verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So I'm going to sit on chapter on chapter one, on verse one, because there's so much there, right? If you went to the web page, you saw some little word studies on that word God and that word um, created, and you know that they're very significant. But I want to stop before we even jump in. We need to know that the subject of the entire book is in this first sentence. We come to the word and we have a tendency. We get caught up in the deception, right? The lie from the enemy that this book is about us. We want to make it a book about us. We want it to be a self-help book. We want it to help us thrive. We want it to fix our marital problems. We want it to fix our kids. We want it to be about us, right? But the Bible is not a book about us. The Bible is a book about God. The Bible is a book about God. The first three chapters set the scene for the rest of the book. The Bible is a book about a creator God who is restoring and redeeming his relationship with the created because what sin came in and did. It tells his story and how he created a perfect world for the crown of his creation, man, and how man chooses to turn from him. And we know that he relentlessly pursues us, right? I can't wait till next week. We were going over it as leaders earlier and it's God chases us down and he seeks us out right from the beginning. God is restoring us back to this garden place that we see in chapter one. It's a place that is best for the created, for us as man. It is a place with God. So like I said, all of the subject matter for the entire book can be found right here in the first sentence and it gives us more satisfaction and it's better than any philosophers or scientist theories, anything that they could possibly dream up. It is better. It is a book about creator and his relationship with us, the created. 
Psalm 119, 130 says, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And right here, we see that happening. It is a book about God. And he wants us to understand him and understand what he has done for us. We have the confidence to come before his word, knowing that he is going to give us the understanding we need. So like I said, whenever you went to that blog post on the first day, you saw that the word for God is the word Elohim in the Hebrew. And grammatically, Elohim is a plural word, and it's used throughout the Bible as if it were singular. So instead of saying they did X, Y, and Z, it says he did X, Y, and Z. But we see that it encompasses all of who God is, right? as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And they are all fully present right from the start as one person. So right out of the gates, we are seeing one of our first doctrines. Remember, we said that we're going to see a lot of first doctrines and the law of first mentions, if you will, if you know what that is in, um, in Hebrew teaching, right? Um, I'll expound on it later. But <laughs> we see that we find the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and what we believe about God is foundational. So your workbook had you go to verses in John and Hebrews and Colossians, and all of them pointed to God as Trinity. And they all pointed to him being fully gauged in creation, in the shaping and the filling and the forming um, that we see in the Genesis account. So we also saw that word um, bara for the word created, and it is specific and it means created from nothing. And specifically the verb tense that is used here it, it's used only of God. Only God can bara, right? Only God can create in this way, in this specific verb tense. So the world as we know it did not come about by chance. It was all created from nothing by an eternal God who always was, is, and always will be. We're seeing some of his characteristics here. We're seeing he's eternal, right? Attributeless. It's, it's going to be your best friend. We're going to point you to it all the time. So if the world were to implode today, God would still remain. He is eternal. Theories like the Big Bang, and I'm, <laughs> I don't do this theory justice at all, so bear with me. But theories like the Big Bang, it implies that a tiny bit of something existed and by chance expanded and grew to form the perfectly functioning and harmonious universe as we know it. These are just my thoughts, but to me, it makes much more sense to believe in the creator who set everything perfectly in place. I can place my trust in something, someone there, right? Rather than just something that happened by chance. If everything came about by just one tiny little speck, then I'm also inclined to believe that by chance, it could also easily fall apart. With God, that is not so. He created everything from nothing. He is a God who is in control of his creation and intelligently designed everything to work perfectly as it does. Just take a look around. Gravity, light, the sun, the moon, the stars, water, our seasons, it all works so intricately. And if they were off even just a little bit, we would not be standing here talking about it today. That, my friends, is not mere chance. God holds all things together. So now that we know about the book's purpose, right? It's a book about God. As good 
Bible students, we have to ask the question, why? <laughs> why, God, did you create the heavens and the earth, right? Let's read verse 2 again. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that word, the Hebrew for the words formless and void there are tohu avohu. Now those rhyme, and they would have caught the attention of the original reader's um, mind, right? They would have got their attention. So again, why did God create the heavens and the earth? And I'll give you the answer right now, but I believe that chapter one is going to validate my answer and my point. He created the heavens and the earth to prepare a dwelling place for man. So imagine a lump of clay, right? And I kind of feel like that's what's going on here. It said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit hovering over some water, like, well, how did we get to that point, right? So everything came into being. And then from there, God shaped and he formed. So imagine a lump of clay, just as the lump of clay, it has no function or purpose. And that's pretty much what's happening until the artist takes the clay and he forms it. And for our clay, we're going to say we're forming it into a cup. It's, it's intended to have a purpose, right? It's intended to have function. But even then, if it doesn't execute that form and function, it's pretty much useless. So in our cups case, we need it to be filled and then to properly hold what it's being filled with, right? So that's exactly what God is doing here. He shapes and forms creation the first three days. And Tracy, this is my slide. And I will put these on the website. So if y'all are crazy trying to write them down, but um, the first three days he's shaping and he's forming. And then the following three days he is filling and he's giving function and purpose. So on the first day, he separates light from darkness. The second day, he separates sea from sky. The third day, he's separating the land from the sea and producing vegetation for the land. On the fourth day, he fills the heaven with the sun, moon, and stars. The fifth day, he fills the sea with fish and the sky with birds. And then he fills the land with animals. And lastly, he creates man. Now, I want you to take note. Day four goes into day one. Here's the form and the shaping. Here's the filling and the function, right? God places day four into day one. In day two, he places what comes along in day five. In day three, he places what comes along in day six, right? It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. God, it's not just a bunch of words we read on the paper, right? It's art. It's poetry. It has pattern and rhythm. So moving on. I want us to jump down to verses 26 through 28 because I just covered the in-between verses there with this one little graphic. I don't feel the need to necessarily read all of those for you out loud here. So let's jump to verses 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created, created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So firstly, we're seeing that God made man in his image according to his likeness. So what does that really mean? These words here, image and likeness, they kind of mean the same thing, but when they're put together, they're meant to be even more expressive, right? So until this point, nothing had been made to even remotely resemble God. Man was created distinct from everything else. Skipping ahead to Genesis 2-7, you don't necessarily have to go there, but we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. From the dust of the ground, God fashioned man. And the dust here is symbolic of the lowliness of man in relationship to God. And it points to the grandeur of the creator to make the very crown of his creation from next to nothing. Man's body was a mere clay vessel until God breathed his life into him. So Tracy, my next slide, please. So to better understand being made in the image of God, awoken with the very life of God, we can break the concept down into three aspects. And these are all pulled directly from a David Guzik commentary if you want to go look at it for yourself. But to be made in the image of God means that we have personality, morality, and spirituality. So where personality is concerned, it means that we have knowledge, feelings, and a will. This is what sets us apart from all of the animals and all of the plants, right? And to possess morality, it means that we are able to make moral judgments and we have a conscience. There's no little deer out there wondering like, am I gonna hurt Bambi's feelings? <laughs> you know, like we have morality about us. It means humans possess spirituality to be made in the image of God. We are made for communion with him. And it is on the level of spirit that we communicate with God. So, Tracy, next slide, please. Ultimately, God created us to reflect his character. Oops, did I make that one? Maybe not. Yeah, I did. Sorry, I have it out of order. Yep, there you go. God created us to reflect his character, creativity, and his role. And when we do that, he is glorified. So another way to understand what is going on with, what does this image of God mean? In ancient religion, the little G gods, the fake gods, like they were fake. I don't want to ever give them any power because they didn't have any, right? But the people would make temples for their gods and they would place an image in the temple. And they believed that temple represented that God and how it looked and it also contained that God's presence, right? And it communicated with them there. Again, it's fake, not a real God, <laughs> not a real thing. But the original readers would have heard this image language, right? And this is exactly where their minds would have gone. They, they would have been made to think that God placed his image in his temple to represent him, to multiply and make more little image bearers, right? And then to execute his rule, to execute his judgment, to execute this, what we're reading in verses 26 through 28, right? 
That would be the purpose of this image in this temple, which is creation. And so to think of it properly, we can think of a mirror. And it's not a mirror that reflects us back up to God, to himself. No, it is a mirror that is at an angle. And all of the worship of creation, right? Because we know when you go to the Grand Canyon, it sings the praises of God and how he created and, and his beauty and his wonder. It sings his praises. And through us, it's reflected back up to him. But in the same sense, God reflects back out into the world his rule. That was our original design. So here after the sixth day, we can see that all was right with God's creation. His original design, like I talked about, can be easily remembered with those four Ps. Now that slide. <laughs> Sorry, I had them out of order. So we see God's presence, his people, his place, and his purpose. So God was in direct relationship and fellowship with man in the beginning, here in this garden place. And we see God's people. He made them in his image to reflect who he is among the rest of creation and everyone to come after him. We see place that God had made this creation perfect, harmonious, and it was untainted by sin for man to dwell in. He placed man in the garden with him where they had everything they could ever need. Everything. And then we see that they were given purpose in these verses we just read, verses 26 through 28. They were given the task of multiplying and glorifying him in all they were to do. So these four Ps, you're going to see them throughout the rest of the Bible because God is in constant restoration and he is constantly redeeming these four things, his presence, his people, his place, and his purpose. So again, Moving on, well, kind of moving on. I want you to notice that there was a pattern of something that was said, and you probably caught on to it. So it says, and God said, let there be light, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there, whatever it was, right? And it was so. When God speaks, when God says, then it is so. His word is truth. Nine times we see that repeated, and so, when there's something like that in the Bible, when it's getting repeated, we have to pay attention. We have to see the significance. When God says something here, it is so. So I was thinking about times in the Bible where God said something and it was so, and I was led to Numbers 13, where God told the Israelites, well, he told Moses specifically to send in 12 spies, each one representing um, each tribe of Judah, right, to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and spy it out, to check out all the goods, to see what's going on there, bring back some of the spoil that you find, and like, let's talk about how good this land is that we're going to move into, right? A land that he was giving them, and even more so a land that he had already said was theirs. He said, I've given you that land, you just got to go in and take it, right? He wasn't asking them if they could do it. Never once did God say, go in and find out if you can. No, the land was already theirs. But because 10 of the 12 spies decided to doubt God and question his word, an entire generation was sentenced to wander in the wilderness and they lost out on the promises of God. An entire generation. It was right there before them. The promised land was theirs for the taking and they missed it. 
with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the two who had full confidence in God to say, let's do this. And of course they were outnumbered. And then the people of Israel were like, no, we can't do it. We know that they're a hot mess if you keep reading. Keep reading, you're gonna see everybody's a hot mess in this book. But the same is true for us. We have to believe that when God speaks, when we read his word, when we examine his promises, we need to know that it is so, that he means what he says. And when we don't, only death and destruction are in store for us, just like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We begin to doubt who he is. We doubt his promises. We question his word. And then we start to question our identity in him. God made man in his image, and it wasn't until they were made that all of creation was considered very good. This is why man is created or considered the crown of creation. God created the heavens and the earth as a dwelling place for man. His beloved, his image, God wants us to have a proper relationship with him, his word and his creation. God made you. And when he was done, he saw his beautiful creation and he called you very good. Now, absolutely, we are all tainted by sin. Don't hear me wrong, right? There's a proper understanding that like, hey, I'm a mess and I need God. But when God created you, he saw no fault in you. He doesn't see that you're unworthy. He doesn't think you're stupid or you're ugly or any kind of negative thought that we put on ourselves, right? And can you imagine how it must break his heart when we think that about ourselves or even other creation, other people created in his image? And you can just look at the world all around us right now and see the destruction of that very thing, not properly valuing being made in the image of God, each and every human being. So moving on from that, we do see at the conclusion of the first or the sixth day that God looked at all he made and he called it very good. So jump ahead to Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3, and it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. If you have another version, it might say, and it was holy, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So I want you to think about this. I hope you went and read that blog. I hope God's already been doing the work of conviction on your heart. But I want you to think about this. The first full day of humanity in its completed state was a day of rest. A day of rest. A day where everything stopped. God looked at all he had made and simply delighted in what he considered very good. That word Sabbath means rest, or it means to stop, to cease. So right from the beginning, Sabbath is instituted as a rhythm of the entire world. From the beginning of time, seven days in, and Sabbath is a thing. It is a rhythm. So not only did God gift us an entire day to stop and rest and delight in him, he also gave us daily Sabbaths. 
maybe some of you get a couple. I only get one. But he gifted us a nightly Sabbath, right? We sleep and we stop and we rest from our work because we need it. He was gracious enough to give us that so we could start the new day with his mercies, right? That we're absolutely going to need. So God cares about us getting rest. He instituted Sabbath because he loves us. Because we need it. So this next few things I have to say about Sabbath, I want you to know that I am coming from a place of heavy, heavy conviction. And even a few years in of conviction to observe a Sabbath. And to this point, I've kind of ignored God and I've not taken it seriously. And he's not letting me ignore it anymore. And I've been digging in and I've been studying and I've been talking to my husband. And it is something that I'm, that we're, we're going to start doing. We're going to observe because we know it's for our good. And we know it's for God's glory. But I do want you to know, like, I'm not coming from a, like, this is how you do it. Because, first of all, there's no really hard and fast rules. But we do see that there is a command to observe the Sabbath in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. And we see Jesus talk about Sabbath. We see other New Testament writers talk about Sabbath. So it's a big deal. And we, if you went to the blog post, you, it's, a ten, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? And I don't remember those getting kicked out with Jesus. He didn't come and fulfill the law and that one just got the boot, right? Just like, you're not supposed to kill anybody still. <laughs> but I do want you to take note that those first five, those first five commandments, they really are like laws of morality. Like, it will never be okay to kill someone, right? But it is our choice to observe a Sabbath. It is our choice to be obedient in observing a Sabbath. So the next five are those things where it's a choice to grow in maturity with God. So now go back and look at that list again and realize, like, morality versus maturity in those Ten Commandments and see where you land. But moving on. So I want you to ask yourself right now, and even how you've looked at Sabbath, maybe you've never even considered Sabbath, but when you think of Sabbath, are you viewing it as a blessing or is it a burden? Because I know every time I've gone to talk to Derek, my husband about it, and even whenever I've talked to Candace and Angie, the idea of observing a Sabbath, it seems hard. It seems hard, but how? How am I going to take a whole day and just rest when there's so much to do? When there's so much that I'm responsible for? It's, it's straight up hard. Like even now I'm like, man, we were supposed to start this Saturday, but how? How? How would we get anything done? When would we even observe it? Because there's that question. Do we observe it on Saturday, Sunday? Is it on my day off in the middle of the week? Right? There's all these questions. But... I look at the state of my own soul. I look at my husband's soul. I even look at Candace and Angie and the conversations we've had. I look and see it on your faces here. And I know some of your stories. And I see people that are living in busyness. And I see people living in hustle and fatigue. And we're living in pure burnout. Pure burnout. So, you know, when you're having a pretty okay day, finally, like you feel like you are kind of on top of the world a little bit. And then someone comes to you and says, man, you look tired. <laughs> and you just want to punch them in the face. Like, I finally felt good today. And you're letting me know I'm tired. 
but really we are, right? And truly, the lack of a Sabbath, it's physically evident on us. And that's not even mentioning what they can't see on the inside. That's not including the stress and the anxieties of the world and all we're responsible for, all that we've put on our own shoulders, right? So if you ask anyone just how they're really doing, you're probably going to hear, I'm good, right? What's the next thing you always hear? I'm busy. Just busy, right? How many of you have used that answer? I'm good, just busy, right? We're all busy. We're so busy that that's one of our first answers is we're good, just busy. But honestly, if we're being completely honest, we are not good because of the busyness. And often we glorify the busyness, right? We're like, I'm busy and the kids are doing this and we're going here and vacation is then. And like, we glorify it like it's a good thing, but it's really running us ragged and into the ground because we haven't created a Sabbath. We're breaking down on the inside and our joy and our happiness in God is dwindling and it's draining. Our entire beings, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our body are desperately longing for rest. Longing for this place of unity and oneness and joy in our maker. So I bet you, I want to bet you a million dollars, but then you'll be like, eh. anyways, so... None of you are going to answer this question, how are you, with, you know what, I'm fantastic, and I'm so well rested, and I have so much margin in my life, you know, like to the point where I'm almost bored, like I just don't have anything to do, and I've just really been delighting in the Lord. He is my portion, and my cup is full, and everything is good and right, like, Who's going to say that right now? None of you. None of you. I'm not going to. And if you did, you're a bunch of liars. (laughs) Right? And if anybody who does tell you that, they are liars. And if they said that, we would look at them like they were insane and wonder, okay, but what's really wrong? Like, what is really going on? Because she's a liar. But the truth is we have to create the margin in our life for a day, an entire day. 24 hours as we see it here in his word to delight in the Lord. And it is then that we will start to find the margin to delight in him throughout the week and then in every day and then in every moment. And to observe Sabbath, it does take planning and preparation. If you're going to do it well, like if you're really going to do Sabbath well, it takes some preparation. And we could talk about all that later. I don't have the time here, but I would love to talk to you about what it is I've been discovering and learning. So some guidelines and some boundaries have to be put in place. And you're going to want to be on the same pe- on the same page as your people, right? Absolutely your spouse. But even then your extended family and your friends, like they need to understand that you have set apart a day for the Lord, that you have consecrated and co- consecrated it and called it holy for him. And that tiny computer that you carry around so proudly, like an extension of yourself, right? It's an extra limb. That stupid thing probably has to go on this day. Now that's between you and the Lord. But I highly doubt many of you are going to fight me on that. Who's who's like, this thing, it just gives me so much life. Like, no, 
No, it creates chaos. It helps you manage the busyness. So it's got to go. We have to take a day and unplug from the world. Unplug from the hustle and the bustle, from the busy. And we have to plug into our life source. We have to take a nap. Who just wants a nap? Mm, I want to be a nap person, but I just can't when I lay down. It just doesn't happen for me. Who wants to just read a good book? Like, I'm not even talking spiritual formation. I'm just talking like good novel. Just read a good book. Now, spiritual formation is good. I'm not saying throw it out, but who wants to eat some yummy food and feast? Delight in the Lord. Yes, Maribel, thank you. She, she was brave enough to raise her hand. Yes. To go on a walk. Again, you're not counting your steps. You're not measuring anything. We're just walking here. <laughs> it's a day to just enjoy your people. To enjoy your people and to enjoy your God. To enjoy your God. So like I said, Derek and I, we're going to implement it. And I pray that you have a conviction on your heart right now that you need that as well. And not just because I'm telling you it, but because it comes from the word of God. Because it is a commandment for our good and for his glory. Will you take that step in maturity? Even just baby steps. Baby steps. So I want to read you this quote by John Mark Comer. It says, rest is a weapon. You want to fight Satan? You want to fight your flesh? You want to fight the world? Sabbath. Take that Satan. Seriously, rest is a weapon. It's really hard to tempt people that are healthy, happy, and well-rested. It's really easy to tempt people who are tired and stressed out. How many of that? How many of you does that resonate with your soul? A quote from Corey Ten Boom says, "If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy." Mm. So we must rest to fight, and we must fight to rest. I'll say that again: we must rest to fight, and we must fight to rest. And of course, we all know Psalm 4610, be still and know that the Lord is God. A better translation is to stop, cease working, and know who I am. Delight in me. So we find out in this first chapter why God created the heavens and the earth, right? To make a dwelling place for man. We learn that we're created in the image of God, but even more so, we're pointed to the one, the son of man, the one that is the image of God among us whenever he was here, and his name is Jesus. In your verses in Colossians that you were to look up this week, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what does it mean to be an image bearer? At the end of the day, we look to Christ for that example. What does it mean to rule and have dominion over all the earth? We look to Christ. Then in the power of his spirit, we go and we do it well. So to say it once again, the reason we're at Genesis, we're at the beginning, right? Is because it's important. If as Christians, we started here, if we let the beginning be our foundation, 
we would see it's all about God and we would not be tempted to make it all about us. So if anything, I hope we walk away with that, right? Knowing that this is a book about God, not me. Not to say that we don't learn about ourselves, right? But it puts us in our proper place when we start here in the beginning, God. It's about him. It's for him. So as we continue on in reading, I pray that our eyes are opened and, and that our eyes are trained to look for what God has said, what he sees and what he has created and what he is doing with his creation and that we will believe that it is so. I pray that we truly believe in him and believe in his plan. I pray that we understand what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to see with his eyes submitting to the command to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and subdue. Only now, it's, it's beyond mere reproduction, right? It's not just making babies anymore. It's making disciples. That is what it looks like to be fruitful and multiply to us now, in a sense, in Christ Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit who brings forth that fruit that we could have never imagined on our own and who calls us to those who need him most to grow our spiritual families in ways that we could not have done on our own before the fall. Because now we have Jesus. Now we have the Spirit. So we can mourn because we know what happens to this garden place, right? We know what's coming. Selah said in her prayer, like, we know what goes on in Genesis. It's all about to fall. Literally, it succumbs to the fall. And so we can mourn for what is lost here in this perfect world in the garden, but we can rejoice in our living hope that is in Jesus. So I want to point out that without the fall, there wouldn't be a need for the resurrection which in itself brings about a glory far beyond whatever it was that was to come in the garden, had it played out in a perfect sense, right? When Christ returns, there will be no tempter that's coming. No choosing on our own between what God has commanded and our limitedness. We will be in the fullness of his glory. Creation in perfect submission to the creator. We have the opportunity before us to choose God. So I pray that we do that this week. Let me pray, and we will go home to our families. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, Creator God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we love you. We're in all of you. I thank you for unveiling mysteries in this last week, God, where your word is concerned, where creation is concerned. God, may we place our faith in you and not a theory, not an attempt to understand, God, but just in you. May we know that in the beginning, God, and may we know that that is enough for us. We don't need any more explanation that it's not about that explanation, God, but that we will choose to see how you chase us down and you pull us out of the muck and the mire and that you set our feet upon the rock. God, that you are our foundation. Your word is firm and it is true and it is unshakable. God, I pray that you will put a faithfulness in us this week to your word, that we will show up each and every day that we will do the work, 
God, knowing that you have something for us, that you have understanding, that you have knowledge, that you have wisdom that you want to impart to us whenever we do the work. God, when we just show up and say, Holy Spirit, help me, that you are faithful and true. So God, I pray over each woman here and ask, Lord, that you make the way for her. God, help her to create the margin for time in your word. God, for time and rest with you. May we all go home and get a good night's sleep. God, and when the weekend rolls around, may we have already started to have some conversation with the people in our life to make a day holy for you, to enjoy you, to enjoy one another, to enjoy the blessings of all that you've given us in yourself and in creation. So God, we just, we glorify you in it all. All of it, God, we surrender our lives to you. And we just proclaim our love, God, and our devotion to you. May we all truly be devoted women this week. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.